Well, good morning, Bentonville Community Church. Um, thank you, Chad and Stephanie and the team uh, for leading us in worship. Uh, I, my name's Kurt Libby. I'll tell you a bit about myself in a minute. Most of you don't know who I am, uh, but that's okay, because um, I know all of you. Just kidding. Uh, that would be weird. If you have a Bible, uh, turn to Genesis 32, uh, or if you have a Bible app, uh, as my kids say, search it up. Search up Genesis 32. Um, while you're finding that, uh, we're going to be camped out in there today. Uh, tell you a bit about me. So I'm an ordained Nazarene pastor in a tent-making season. So what that means is I don't make any tents at all, but that is the season that I'm in. Um, so um, I work on developing iPhone apps uh, for a living, and then I devote myself to preaching. During COVID, I didn't get to do that very much because COVID... And so uh, uh, I'm really excited that I get to come back and start preaching again. Uh, I've, my family and I relocated to Bentonville, Arkansas in 2019, and I've really enjoyed getting to know the area. It's, um, we lived in California for about 15 years, and I grew up in Carson City, Nevada before that. So uh, it's very different when you get to Arkansas than it is out California and Arkansas, in case you've never been to California. They're different places. Um, and... Uh, as you find yourself moving around a new area, there's a lot of non-obvious ways that life happens here that you wouldn't just know if you visit. But once you actually are here for a while, you start to see, and I start to ask all these questions like, why are the streets laid out like this? Where's the good taco truck? By the way, they're in California, but there's some, there's some good, there's some okay taco trucks here. Uh, but uh, we, we were driving around all of these bike trails that we had no idea were like right behind these houses all over this city. And, and when you first get to an area, you, you also just realize the pace of life, the way that people do things. It's just, it's just different when you're used to something else. When you move somewhere completely new, you start to see all these new ways of life, and it makes you realize how much that you think is normal is actually just normal for you. You may actually just be completely weird, but you're just similarly weird with all the people that are around you. And so it's normal for you. And so that's basically uh, growing up and that's life. Like we, we all grow up somewhere. So you grow up, you uh, have a family system, and chances are your family system is great in some ways and completely dysfunctional in others. And so then as you grow up and then you get to start your own family, you decide, you know, we're going to fix the dysfunctional parts and then you're dysfunctional in a whole new way. And that's just the, these, these, as we grow up and experience other cultures and locations and way of life, we start to realize that none of this is normal. We're all at least a little bit weird. And we are a product of the environment that we came from before us. So, so you experienced something and then you did some of the things that you do later in life is because you liked the way that you experienced it. Other things you just like do it differently because you didn't like the way that you experienced it. And for the most part, life seems to be just people doing their best with whatever they've been given. They build a life for themselves and for their children or other people's children and maybe try to leave the world in a better place for generations to come. And this is what humanity is, just over and over and over and over again. You just do the best with what you've got and maybe try to fix some things along the way. Sometimes what was passed down was very helpful. Sometimes it was not helpful at all. And so it, like this process, 
this, this happens on macro levels. Like there's huge things that are like this whole thing needs to change and there's micro things like I'm not going to take this thing from before and continue to have that have This cycle and process has been around throughout human history. It's part of you know, we raise our young and then we pass things down and that's just the way that it is. And it's important to understand that because we're going to go back, way back, and look at the life experience surrounding the story of Jacob. But you have to remember like, it was a different time. He was doing the best that he had with what was given to him to try to make the best life and try to make sense of things. And then there were some things that he would keep and some things that he would get rid of. And there was, it's just different. So we're going to start in Genesis 32 in verse 22. And it's going to get very weird very quick. All right. So chapter 32, verse 22, it says, that night, Jacob got up and took his two wives. All right. So we didn't get very far. Jacob has two wives. Um, I don't know, raise your hands. How many people? Just kidding, we won't do that. All right. Uh, his two female servants and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all of his possessions. This is kind of a weird sentence too because he sent over all the people and then the possessions. Like, is this some kind of a Beauty and the Beast situation where like, the possessions can walk themselves across? Like, how do these possessions... I don't know. I don't understand it. I wasn't alive then. So Jacob was left alone. <laughs> and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. So Jacob is alone, and he wrestles with somebody. <laughs> if you don't get that... Uh... When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled the man. And then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me, as you always do in wrestling matches. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. And then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome so Jacob says, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? And then he blesses him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. It's a very weird reason to not eat tendon. Like if I was inviting you over to my house and you, and said, and you said, well, what are we going to have for dinner? And I was like, well, we're going to have barbecue tendon. And you're like, well, my grandfather got touched in the hip and so I don't eat tendon. No, just don't eat tendon. It's tendon. Weird. Anyway, it's a weird excuse. So the whole story is kind of weird and we're going to get to all that. But I want to, we've been talking about faith and so I want to get into Hebrews 11 and talk about where this story kind of shows up in the New Testament, and then we'll go back, and then we'll come back to the New Testament as well. But chapter 11 of Hebrews is this hall of fame, this hall of faith, and we've been looking at it as this hall of flaw, where like these faithful people totally, they totally have faith, but also like they're kind of messed up in some ways too, because they're human. So it goes through, and there's like by faith Abel, and by faith Enoch, and by faith Noah, and by faith Abraham, by faith, by faith, it's like all this stuff is happening. So we just need to understand what is faith as the Hebrews writer describes it. So that's verse one and two. It's very popular scripture. Faith is confidence in what we hope for, an assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. So when he's saying by faith through all these people, there's, there's this 
uh, uh, he's talking about a confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Now, we can read Genesis, like this passage that we just read, or we can read Hebrews, or even when we read Jesus stories or Paul stories in the New Testament. Like, my guess is that if you actually read this, you'll get to this place pretty quickly where you're going to be like, I struggle to relate with that because it's weird. It's not so, like, you can't just read this Bible and just be like, well, that makes sense. Clearly, I understand exactly what I should do with my life because there's some weird stuff in here on every page. Like, there's not really many pages that aren't just weird because things come from a different time. And I want to encourage you that when you get to this, like, there are people not you, but there are other people, so maybe you could pass this encouragement on, that you get to this place where you struggle with reading the Bible because you can't relate to some of the stuff in it. And I want to encourage you that when you get to those places, struggle with what's in the Bible. Because if you actually don't just give up on it and you struggle with it, you go through the struggle and you actually deal with what's in here, there might, like, all you need is one tiny glimpse of you in the story where you can see yourself in it, and it's going to start to unravel and unloose all kinds of things in here. And so just keep going. Don't stop struggling with it. When you feel that, like, I struggle to relate to this, just keep going. Because, and this is, hopefully this is helpful. This is your first note if you're a note taker. Faith and doubt are two sides of the same coin. What I mean by that is faith only exists in an environment of doubt. So uh, uh, faith only exists amongst doubt. So like there's, everyone does, that does anything by faith. They find themselves first in this environment of doubt, this like murky, cloudy, hazy vision of the future with unnameable questions, all right? There's like not this story, but there's a story of Abraham, which is going to come up later in the summer, like is told to just like go to the land that I will show you. And like, that's, that's really difficult faith stuff because like there's no Google Maps. You can't like Zillow what it's like there. Like you can't like, there's no, literally it's just like, but where? Like over that mountain, but I've never been there. Like to just like take your family and go over the mountain and see what's next. Like none of us experience faith like that. Like stuff is so laid out for us in ways that we can do research and like, there, there's, there, I remember as a, as a teenager, this youth pastor tried to steal an example, Sunday school example or whatever, about a chair, where it's like, when you see a chair, you have, the, like, until you sit in the chair, you, you have this moment where there's this faith that, like, the chair is going to hold you. But, like, I don't think that's true at all, because, like, not, I sincerely doubt that any of you came in here and, like, looked at the chairs that you're sitting in, and you're just like, I really doubt it's going to hold me, but I'll try it. Like, there was no faith situation. You just sat in it. Like, and, and faith exists in an environment of doubt. So I heard another thing that was like a rope swing. Like, like oh, you're like, the faith is like holding onto the rope swing. I'm like, kind of, but like, I'm going to let 12 people go on that rope swing before I go on it. So like, my faith is not really like, it's, anyway. So faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what we cannot see. And what I, want to, what I want you to think about here is that, the, like, where does this come from? If it's in this environment of doubt, the initial moment of this faith thing, like the spark, 
that will someday become full-fledged faith, but like right now, it's just like the inside doubt, there's just like this very beginning initial moment is this split second where we let go of being sure of what we despair and say maybe we can be sure of what we hope for. Because in doubt, you're sure of what you despair. You're, you're certain of what you cannot see still, but you're certain of something that's really bad, and, you, and you've got this, this doubt, this thing that is like, oh, this is going to be bad. And the beginning of faith is like this split-second moment where you're just going to let that go, and maybe I can be sure of what I hope for instead. Now listen, some of you, some of us, feel like this is difficult. Very specific situations because we've been burned by hope before. If you haven't been burned by hope before, wait a little while. It'll happen. Because you put your hope in something, and even when it's like really a sure thing, things just don't work out the way that you thought it would. So the way that you put your hope in it just ends up hurting you in ways that you didn't expect to happen. I want to encourage you that letting go of your certainty on doubt and dread for a split second is enough to get you started, and that hope is worth it. That even if you've been burned by hope before, that hope is worth it, that there's a future beyond this. We need to get back to Jacob, and I want to look at the environment in which he came up into the world, because we want to look at his faith. But frankly, his story is a little different from mine. Uh, he has more wives than I do, uh, uh, lived at a different time. And uh, unless we do some, some of the work to see ourselves in the story, it's, uh, it's going to feel like I struggle to relate to this. So I want to look at how, like, some of his, how the writer of Hebrews kind of talks about his environment. So look at this in, starting in verse 8, Hebrews 11, verse 8. It says, by faith, Abraham, when called to, a pl- called to go to a place he would, receive, he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. This is that story we're talking about. By faith, he made his home in the promised land. Like a stranger in a foreign country, he lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob. This is where Jacob shows up. Who were heirs with him of the same promise. So if you, if you don't remember your Sunday school stuff, so Father Abraham has a son named Isaac, who has a son named Jacob, and I am one of them, and so are you. So, they were heirs with him of the same promise, and it says, for he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So he goes to this promised land, but he dwells in a tent, and so do his kids, and then his kids' kids. They're tent dwellers, and they're looking forward to this city with foundations whose architect and builder is God, and this is your next note, is that we all experience, all of us experience this metaphorical tent living and long for a home with a firm foundation. There's just this, this thing that feels temporary and that like we wish that we could get it figured out, but like watch the news. Stuff isn't figured out. I wish that God would solve some problems. I wish that Jesus would be here and would reign on earth and everything would be solved and that we'd be in the city. The architect is God and a firm foundation and nothing would fall out. Like, we want that. There's a thing in us that's like, fix the thing, all right? People don't even believe in God. Like, just watch politics every four years. 
people are hopeful that somebody's going to fix the thing. Like, we all want the thing to be fixed. And so there's this, like, temporary, like, this isn't exactly right, but hopefully someday it'll all get figured out. That's something that's in all of us. And since we're talking about this construction of life, I think it's important to do a quick aside on a topic called deconstruction. So deconstruction, if you're not familiar with that, it's taking apart something to see, taking apart the thing to see how it works, all right? So in a spiritual, religious sense, deconstruction is a process that it's being talked about a lot right now, a lot with millennials, is that there's this, like, taking apart the thing that we received and looking at the pieces and then hopefully maybe putting that back together in some way. Um, There's also this, like, hesitation and weird move toward like, this is not healthy, this is not good, we should not be deconstructing. If you are deconstructing, then you've lost your faith, or you're backsliding, or you're like, like you should be sure of what you hope for, and certain of what you cannot see, and like, listen, deconstruction is not necessarily bad, and sometimes it is necessary and healthy. What I've seen over the years, I've worked with thousands of teenagers, and there's there's actually a bit of advantage to the tent life admitting that it is a tent life. Meaning, when I, I've worked with kids that grew up in Christian homes that were like, this is the way that it is. We have it figured out. We know all the doctrine, all the theology. It's done, set in stone. And then you experience something where somebody outside of that exact rigid structure actually is exhibiting the fruits of the Spirit, and, you're, and things start to fall apart. Or people within that that are supposed to have the fruit of the Spirit are actually acting in a completely unsanctified way, and things start to fall apart because you are so rigid. But there's this advantage for kids that don't grow up in a Christian home or that kids that, uh, the kids that are given some grace as they're learning things to be like, this is a tent life. We kind of like, we're trying to figure it out. It's not done and solved yet. It's not over. We're, we're trying to go through this process. Like, yes, this part, it is finished. But like, Jesus is going to make everything healed and whole. And we're not there yet. And so since we're not there yet, we have to like work through that. And maybe we don't know or have all the perfect answers for everything. Because listen, when we act like everything is settled, it is discombobulating to, to experience how unsettled it all is. And like, if you're honest, it's unsettled. We haven't figured it all out. So, and Christianity is marred with a long history of selfish, sinful, unholy, anti-Christ values that are held dear within Christianity and then later reformed or removed. When you look at slavery, when you look at the westward expansion and the murder of Native Americans if they didn't believe the gospel, if you look at the, the, the crusades, there's all these types of things that are like, this was the Christian thing to do. Historically, it is precisely deconstruction that creates space to eradicate these sinful values, systems, and roots, and it creates a constructive possibility for revival. Listen, the things that we inherit aren't always holy. And this is what I want you to understand, is that finding the work of Jesus amongst the pieces as you take the thing apart, this is a holy exploration. And I encourage you to do it, and I encourage other people to do it as well, and you do not be afraid when other people need to go through some deconstruction, because they thought it was one way, and then God starts to show them that there's a lot more going on here. It's a holy exploration. And we're going to see some weird stuff here that hopefully... Uh, you can understand that Jacob had to go through a major change in his, in his life. 
I want to look at the world which Jacob has raised that was all kinds of ungodly, dishonest. And let's just have some grace for them because in other ways, they're just people doing the best they could with what they were given, right? Um, there's the culture that they grew up in. is the way that their parents did it and their parents did it and the stuff that they saw and God's calling them out of them. And if anybody here has walked the road of sanctification, you know that like, there's just more, like years from now, God's going to start convicting you on things. The Holy Spirit's going to start convicting you on things because you, frankly, you can't handle it right now. You're going through some stuff right now that he's rooting out of you, and there's going to be some more stuff years from now, and it's just journey of God continuing to sanctify you and work through you. So I'm going to just summarize Genesis 25 through 32 to get us to that verse, that verse passage that we were, we were just looking at. So starting at 25, because that's where Jacob's born. In, ver- in chapter 25, Jacob was born. He's the second of twins, all right? And he com- Esau, his brother, comes out first. But Jacob's holding the heel of Esau as he comes into the world, which is absolutely insane. I can't even imagine that, that happens. Women, God bless you. Uh, uh, so his name at this point is Jacob, which is grabber or deceiver, which is like a really weird Bible. I don't understand the way that the scholars get this, but his name is grabber or deceiver. And so in a bunch of stuff other happens with Isaac in 26 and in 27, Jacob's grown up. Jacob actually manifests his given name and deceives his father Isaac to steal the blessing that was intended for Esau. There's some stew, there's some fur. It's a whole Sunday school story. Listen, He goes from heel grabber to blessing stealer. Like he actually manifests the thing that was spoken over him of this thing is that he deceives his father. He embodies this grabbing deceptive spirit. And things start to fall apart. And so uh, in in chapter 28, Jacob is instructed to go to Paddan Aram to find a cousin to marry. That's weird. All right? I do not, like, there's some, some people are like, you know, you got to follow every single thing that's in the Bible. This is one of those things that I'm like, maybe it's just a story. Maybe we shouldn't be doing that one. Uh, so, go to your uncle, find a, uh, one of his daughters. We got to get a cousin for you to marry. And then in the middle of all this, Esau kind of goes after him too, and because he stole the, the birthright. And anyway, so on the way to Paddan Aram, Jacob has this dream. He has this moment with God where there's this stairway to heaven moment where he experiences the God that his parents have told him about personally for the first time. He's got this dream. There's a stairway to heaven, Led Zeppelin's playing. It's like this whole majestic thing. If you don't get that, ask somebody older than you. Um, They they have a song to play for you later. Spotify it. Uh, So there's He's been told about God, but then he has the experience with God. He actually has a personal experience with God on his way to Panadaram. And in, in chapter 29, he gets there. He finds the cousin that he thinks is the most attractive, Rachel, and he agrees to work seven years in order to marry Rachel. So, um, but in this chapter, he works through the seven years, and instead of him being the one that deceives people, he gets tricked by Laban, his uncle, and he goes through the whole marriage ceremony and at the end accidentally marries the other sister, Leah. So, uh, and then he's like, dang it, you tricked me. And, uh, uh, and so then they agree that he'll work seven more years to marry the other sister also. Very weird. Like, I just don't, this isn't something that I, I again, I struggle to relate to this. 
Because if I, I just feel like if you worked seven years and the uncle deceived you, like, don't do it again. You're going to get, anyway. Uh, so he agrees seven more years, and then he does it. He marries Rachel, and yeah, he stayed married to Leah the whole time and afterwards. So uh, Jacob, in chapter 30, Jacob has children. In chapter 30, you can read this at home, probably not with your kids. It gets very complicated. There are both wives and a maid servant that's involved, and I won't get into it now, but I do not wish this sort of love quadrilateral on anyone because it is weird. Uh, in this chapter, Jacob also figures out a way to build an incredible amount of wealth with flocks and herds and such. And so he's gaining all this wealth. And in chapter 31, this creates a situation where the other cousins see like, okay, he's got both these wives, he's got these maidservants, he's got all these, these kids, and, uh, and now he's taking all of the wealth as well. So they kind of, they, they get jealous and they plot to destroy him. So Jacob takes his family and flocks and decides to go back to where his dad is because at this point, it's safer to face Esau, who he stole the birthright from his brother, than it is to stay in this situation. So this is like crazy drama. Like, the, it's just unsafe and things are going absolutely insane. And this is how we get to chapter 32, where Jacob sends his family and flocks ahead and then wrestles with God. And I want to look at the conversation that Jacob has with God, the things that are spoken in this struggle. So, uh, remember, Jacob is alone <laughs> with a man and in wrestling. Uh, and he says to him, I will not let you go unless you bless me. He's continuing the same thing. He's already been, he already stole the birthright blessing from his father. He's already been blessed. He's already, like, he just, he left his uncle with all this wealth and all this stuff, and he's in this wrestling match in the middle of the night, and he's like, I would like some more because that's who I am. I'm the grabber. I'm the taker. And so I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he gets asked, what is your name? He's asked this because his name is this thing that's defining him. Stephanie read a couple weeks ago, talked about labels, and if you didn't get to listen to that sermon, I encourage you, go back and listen to it. Jacob, this is the label that is on his life. He is a deceiver. He is a grabber. He says, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. He gets renamed. He gets a new label. He gets this moment with God where he works through the thing and it, and it changes him. And so what he does is he asks, he says, please tell me your name. Like, if you're going to change me, and, and, and I'm not going to be who I was before, who are you that you can just get to change it? I've had this my whole life. How can you just change it? Who are you? He says, why do you ask my name? And then if you, if you read it without the quote, or beyond the quotes, that's when he blesses him. He never tells him his name. Because you, you know. You know who I am, and it doesn't even matter what my name is. It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. He knew, he went from this, like, I had this dream, this experience, this thing with God, to, like, wrestling with God. In the middle of, like, everything is absolutely insane with building this family and this wealth, and I have to go try to get reconciled to my brother, and there's, like, and then he goes through this thing where it's, like, he finally deals with God. God. 
And when he does, his life is spared. And there's just something about having it out with God that changes you. This is your next note if you want to write it down. It's long and we'll leave it up there for a little bit. But listen, the struggle, it can't be theoretical. It can't be metaphorical. It can't be inherited or otherwise absorbed or incorporated. When it comes to God, the struggle is real and the struggle is yours to overcome. No one does this for you. You may have had a come to Jesus moment Stairway to heaven, things open up. But you will have a moment in your life that is yours and yours alone where you have to deal with God and wrestle through it. Because it doesn't just fix everything. Everything isn't just perfect when you just come to Jesus and now it's all good. There's this thing where you have to wrestle. It's the, the inner the intersection of a crumbling spiritual reality with an imploding grasp on what is right and real and true. And listen, you have two options when this stuff happens, when it comes to this moment. You can ignore it or you can deal with it. And I've spent a lot of time with people who have dealt with it and people that have ignored it. And when you come to that moment and you ignore it and you push it down, it begins to numb your ability to sense, appreciate, follow the Holy Spirit in your life because you don't deal with God when it push comes to shove. Dealing with it is this wrestling with God. For me, this is different for everybody. I'll get into my story in a second, but I want to say this, is that like, it's terrifying to me because I have two kids and I love them, and I want them to have a relationship with God, and I want it to be real. But I don't get to manufacture that for them. My parents didn't for me. Like, there's no, nobody knows. It's you and God. You could have the best pastor in the world that wrestles with God and has this amazing experience, and it's still you and God. You could have an amazing spouse with an amazing relationship with God, and it still comes down to you and God. It could be your parents or your grandparents or your kids could have a relationship with God and it still comes down to you and God. For me, I can tell you exactly what the carpet looked like where I spent hours on my face dealing with this wreckage that was coming in where the spiritual walls were falling down and everything that was right and true was like it wasn't working anymore and I had to finally just deal with, I'd been following Jesus for years, but I like the, the carpet, the tears, every stage of grief in this little personal hurricane that comes out like an exorcism of silence. It's just like I finally dealt with the thing that has just been gnawing at me. No one can do that for me. No one can take it away. It's an experience I have with God, and it changes you when you do that. And some of you, you're like, I know what I should be dealing with God about, and I'm not. Others of you, you're like, I know what I needed to, and I did. And others of you, are like, I don't know what you're talking about, and trust me, it's coming. So Jacob has it out with God, and now he walks with a limp. Which I think is really important, because there's this idea that, like, once you actually have it out with God, once you do the thing, like, he survived but he walks with a limp. Like it isn't like, oh, you go to the carpet and you do the thing or the altar or the what, like you 
take time in the woods. I don't know what it looks like for you where you actually go through and you're like, I, I got to go through the thing. And then when you're on the other side, you're not just like healed and whole and like unicorns and rainbows, all right? It's like he walks with a limp. It messed him up to go through this thing with God. So Jacob has it out with God and walks with a limp. And I want to just do a quick summary of what goes out on afterwards so that you're, you're, you understand like the biblical example here is like, it, it looks good and then it, it isn't. So chapter 33, Jacob finally reconciles with his brother. Goes like, so he does the thing with God and then he goes to Esau and it's all reconciled. It's all good. They hug it out. It's great. Things like, and he settles in Canaan in a place called Shechem, which is ruled by a guy named Shechem. And because uh, apparently back then you named things after the guy that ruled it. So uh, chapter 34, so like you're like, okay, Chapter 32, he wrestles with God. Chapter 33, he reconciled. It's all like all the godly stuff. Everything's coming together. Chapter 34 is like one of the most HBO-worthy chapters in the Bible, all right? Like it's, it is filled with rape, revenge, mass circumcision, and total massacre of an entire city. At the end of the chapter, Jacob learns that it's his kids that are doing all this. <laughs> like it's his kids that are in the middle of the whole thing. Can you, like, he wrestles with God. He does the thing. He gets reconciled to his brother. And then rape, revenge, mass circumcision, and total massacre of an entire city by your kids. Whew. It's a rough chapter in your life. But this is where, what brings us to chapter 35 and another conversation that Jacob has with God. And I want to look at this in the first two verses of chapter 35. It says, then God said to Jacob, so he realizes all this stuff happens with his kids, and you can read it uh, at home by yourself or with your children, uh, just forewarning, it's gruesome. Uh, go up, God says to Jacob, go up to Bethel and settle there, and build an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. Now, before we get to the, actually, go back, go back one second. Yeah, all right. So, like, just, like, look at what he says. Go up to Bethel and settle there. Build an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. That's the word from the Lord. Then, verse 2, so Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, get rid of the foreign gods you have with you, purify yourselves, and change your clothes. Like, this is, like, the, the most, like, I love this. This is conversation is, with God is like peak humanity. God says all this stuff, and Jacob says none of it because he reads between all the lines. He's like on this level of intimacy with God where God's like, hey, we're going to go to this thing and do this altar and all this. And, and Jacob's like, all right, family, listen, get rid of the foreign gods. All right, purify yourselves. Change your clothes. This is like... There's these moments with my kids where I wish they got that. You know, you guys know that moment where you're like, hey, it's time to go, which means like there's like 17 things. Like one of them is have shoes on, but they don't know that yet and they can't read between the lines. Jacob's got this relationship with God where God says something and he's like, already, like God could say go and he's like already on it, out the door, we're going. Like he is, this is the dream is, to, is that God would speak to me and I would know all the in-betweens. I understand God. God knows me. I know God. We're in it together. This is the dream. And if you look at Jacob's life, Genesis 28, he's got the dream, the stairway to heaven, the personal experience with God. Genesis 32, he wrestles with God. Gets touched in the hip, starts walking with a limp. And in Genesis 35, 
as everything falls apart in his life, he's on perfect speaking terms with God. Where God's like, do this, and you're like, we're on it. I, I understand everything that's going on. But listen, you can't, how do we get from the, how do we get there? You can't go from a moment. Hopefully you've had this moment, like a moment with God, the God of the universe, the Holy Spirit moving you, the Son of God, Jesus himself saving you, being enthroned in your heart and letting go of everything that's wrong with you so you can receive everything that's right with, with him, everything that's right and good and holy about Jesus. You can't go from that moment to, to just being on speaking terms, comfortable as can be, without any awkwardness on any level where you know God like God knows you, without going through the struggle first. There's got to be a moment where you go from just like there's a moment with God, you don't just get the intimacy with God. There's, there's struggle in between. You got to go through something. This is what I mean when the struggle is, when I say that the struggle is real. The struggle is going to mess you up in the most unique way. It will lead you to a place where you walk with a limp, metaphorically, physically. Have you met those people? These like, I'm not just talking about Hebrews 11, but like those, these saints, these people that you're like, I wish that I had a, when I'm 90, I hope that my relationship with God is like theirs. I, I heard about a guy, uh, I, I read his books and I heard about, his, his name is Dallas Willard. And when he passed away, this guy named John Ortberg was with him and, and, and John told the story that when he talked to Dallas, Dallas said, I think it might take me a couple days to realize that I've passed because God is so present to me right now. Whew! I want to die like that. I want to have faith like some of these heroes in my life. They're flawed. They got all, like, listen, they're not perfect. You know these people, they're not perfect, but you know that they walk with God because they've struggled with God and it shows. They've gone through some stuff. Listen, some of you have never really struggled with God and it shows. You hoped that you had a moment with Jesus and that you could get some sort of intimacy and you never went through the thing, whatever that is for you. And you know it, and you're hung up on something, something you did, something that was done to you, something that didn't fit the way things were supposed to go, and for whatever reason, you've avoided the space where you're going to have to have it out with God. And it has dulled your relationship and awareness to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, and you may know how to go through the actions, but it drives you nuts inside. You wish it was real again. There is no other way except through. You have to go through it. Nobody else can do this for you. And before we finish, I want to highlight how this happened for someone in the New Testament. So this is post-life, death, resurrection of Jesus. Not just looking at the Old Testament, but Saul, very famous character in the New Testament, he persecutes Christians. He persecutes Christians. He's the Pharisee of Pharisees. His, the thing that he inherited from his parents, from his leaders, from his mentors was kill the Christians. Get them in jail. Get rid of them. Shut this thing down until he has a moment with Jesus. 
He has a moment with Jesus on the road to Damascus that changes his life, and then he's, like, he completely flips, and he becomes Paul, and then writes half the New Testament. But listen, his healing, like Jacob, doesn't mean that he doesn't have a limp. Dealing with God actually messes him up and leaves him that way, and for good reason. Look at this in 2 Corinthians. He's talking about this thorn that's in his flesh, this thing that won't go away, and he says, but he said to me, this is his conversation with God, and God says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And some of us are too afraid to go to the mat with God because of the ways that we're weak. And, and listen, his grace is sufficient for the messed up stuff that you're afraid to talk to God about. So that Christ's power may rest on me. It's like God didn't take it away so that he would experience the grace of God. And there's this thing in you that like maybe God will just remove it. And God's like, I'm leaving it there because that's when you get the real stuff. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Listen, keep going. Keep going. Be honest. Walk with a limp. Love Jesus and let it be really hard. And be honest about how it's really hard. It's okay to live out the rest of your days and not pretend that it's all okay when it isn't, when you're sad, when you're depressed, when it doesn't feel like the hope is working. But do it with Jesus. Why is this important? What does this mean for us? Listen, faith, we know this from what we looked at earlier, right? From he was 11, he kind of frames this. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And he, he goes through all these stories of all the ancients, and he gets to Hebrews 12, and, and in, in verse 2, the end of verse 2 and verse 3, he's talking about Jesus, and he comes through all these stories, and he talks about Jesus, and he says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. For the joy set before him. Do you know what the joy is that was set before him? It's not the cross. The joy set before him. What does he get by going to the cross? By going to the cross, he gets you. He gets us. He sees us out here 2,000 years later, and he wants to be with you. So he goes through it all. This is the joy that's before him, is that he would go through everything to be with you. And he wants nothing to be between you. And I was very naive when I was younger, because I didn't experience a lot of this when I, when I was young. But as I grew up, I experienced I want to talk about the faithfulness of God and how the faithfulness of God will mess you up. And the way, like, I sang Great is Thy Faithfulness. I know the songs. I know the verses. But I didn't understand it until I had a friend who was not faithful to his wife. He was not faithful in his ministry. And he lied about some stuff that was going on for a lot of years. And it made me realize that when I decided to marry my wife, and I pledged my fidelity to her. It takes one act of indiscretion to be considered unfaithful. One. That's it. One act of, of indiscretion, you are unfaithful in a covenant. 
And when you look at God, and it says that God is faithful, from generation to generation, there is not one indiscretion that he would go through anything and everything for the joy set before him that in all of your messed up doing the best you can with what you've been given, he would die for you because he is faithful. That will mess you up. So walk with the limp. Work through the mess. God will be with you. He will not leave you. Worse, in a worse condition than you come to him in. And anything that is left, I want to encourage you that he leaves that in you so that you will need him and that his grace can be sufficient for you and his power can be made perfect in your weakness. And I want to end today as we worship together with the final line in Hebrews 11 about Jacob. The band's going to come. You guys can stand. I just want to point this out. This is the scripture that Stephanie uh, read to us earlier. If you guys want to stand, we're going to worship. It says, By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshiped as he leaned on the top of his staff. And I think for every Hebrew that read this, they know he's do he doesn't just have a staff because he's an old guy and old guys have staffs. To that day, his hips messed up. And he's leaning into his weakness, blessing his grandsons, worshiping God. And the fact that maybe that thing never goes away, but you can get through it and be with God in the process, there's nothing more heavenly than that, is that we get to be with God. And so I want to encourage you as we worship to lean into your weakness. God, God, as we come before you today, I pray for everyone in this room, God, that if there's those people that they, they honestly just need to schedule some time to go be alone with you and figure this thing out, God, that you would have grace on them right now and patience and that you would encourage their heart to take that step to wrestle with you. God, for those of us that have grown weary, been in a season of doubt, wondered if faith works anymore, God, I pray that there would be some sparks today, that we could lean into some of the places that we are weak and that there could be some initial moments of faith where we can let go of the thing that, we are, that we're dreading and that maybe we could just be sure of what we hope for for a second again. Christ, I pray that you would be here, Holy Spirit, that you would surround us, that you would be in this place, Holy Spirit, that you would minister amongst your people in a way that only you can. Jesus, I pray that your name would be glorified in this place over these next few minutes. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name.